0: Welcome, everybody, to Crystal Kyle and Friends. Today, we'll be talking to Matthew Zeitlin. So I, I always, I'm iffy on how you pronounce his name. I go Zeitlin, I go Zeitlin.
1: I've been leaning into Zeitlin. He hasn't corrected me, okay. so we're just gonna say it Zeitlin.
0: Well, anyway, the guy's brilliant, uh, economic thinker. He's gonna explain to us everything that went down with the Silicon Valley Bank bailout with the Fed and what they're doing with interest rates. Um, very wonky, very economic-focused type uh, podcast. So for all the nerds out there,
1: get Excited, you're in for a good one, yeah. And you're he's, in with, for a good one. he's with Grid News, uh, and he's been doing great reporting on this that I have found really essential. Um, before we do- jump into our topics, probably by the time this comes out, you will be deserving of congratulations for hitting a million subs.
0: Well, thank you very much. I appreciate that. <laughs> um, yeah, if it's if if I'm not at a million by the time this dropped, then something went very wrong.
1: Yeah, <laughs> you're because definitely on, doing, the, on the track.
0: I'm going to be doing a live stream where the whole point is to celebrate a million. And if I don't hit a million, even during or after the live stream, <laughs> man, that is super embarrassing. <laughs> like, hey, it might happen. You never know. You never know. Might you, with
1: Especially with YouTube, you really never yeah, know. Yeah,
0: really, I could just start, I could just lose 3,000 right during the stream or something. And it's like, no,
1: no. <laughs> Postpone the celebration. <laughs> Trolls take over yeah. and they're just like, nah, fuck this guy. We're gonna make sure he never gets there. Anything can happen. And, or the um, YouTube algorithm kicks in. It's like, how about we just decide that you suck for a while?
0: I mean, that honestly, that's what I felt like they did for a very long time. They did. Like just total. No let, doubt just cut it. off all of his growth. I think it's like a tiered system in terms of how the algorithm treats you, and I'm yeah. like the bottom tier.
1: Um Lowell, our uh, nine-year-old, asked a funny question about the uh, about the plaque. He's a big YouTuber, like YouTube consumer. Right. Mm-hmm. So he's very into it, and he knows about the 100,000 plaque, a million plaque. And so he's asking, what happens if you hit a million and then you, like, drop back down under? Do they come and reclaim
0: your plaque? <laughs> <laughs> it's it like hilarious. YouTube seal team six. <laughs> we got to recover this.
1: Like an alarm goes off you at drop YouTube low. headquarters. <laughs> like, go, go, go. <laughs> He's no longer deserving. Oh, so I'm sure that won't happen. Though. It'll only be up, up, up from here. So congrats, <laughs> I baby. Mean, Fingers Proud crossed.
0: I hope so. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. And uh, you were no small part in helping to achieve this. Uh, us teaming up was phenomenal and I've loved every <laughs> second of it. Um, and yeah, I mean... I hope everybody uh, by the time this drops, people will already have uh, you know the live stream will already be out. So I hope everybody watches that and enjoys
1: it. Well, uh, the tr- the truth of our uh, relationship is that it all started because I was using you for YouTube views <laughs> and subs over Arising. <laughs> <laughs> so that was our strategy in the beginning. Uh, is like, funny. who already has a following that we Look, can was, have on and like mooch off of their audience. It and wasn't it just pretty me. Well.
0: Be honest, you guys were whoring around a bit. Oh, you I'm like, sorry, oh, I don't deny it in whatsoever, in whatsoever.
1: whatsoever. Oh, it, was, it was shameless. It yeah, was absolutely shameless. But
0: you guys also were talented <laughs> on your own too. So it's not well, like, thanks, you know, I appreciate it's it. not just like you were solely riding coattails. <laughs> it was a strategy. And then once you guys have your own identity, anyway, we don't need to get into Listen, that. Listen,
1: You got to do what you got to do in the beginning. That's, That's all I'm saying.
0: Yes. Fair enough. I mean, look, I, there was a time when we first, when I first started my channel before I even did it full time, I think me and my buddy Brian made like seven fake accounts and then subbed to my channel. Really? Yeah. We were like, man, I got, it. I need more subs. What do I do? Nobody's watching. <laughs> what do I do? He's like, all right, let me make, uh, make some, some fake accounts. I think one of them was named Long John Silver's ass, <laughs> and just subbing, and I'd be like, "Look, bro, I hit a hundred subs." <laughs> Doesn't matter that one of them is like ball sucker 7 nine. Like, don't worry <laughs> my about buddy that.
1: <laughs> made. That's a true friend right there. That is a oh, real. Yeah, that's friend. That's my boy. Yeah, yeah, for sure.
0: He, he made. I, no, I think it was just him. I, I don't think Corin was involved in this uh, shenanigans. Yeah, I don't. Yeah, I think it was just him. but we were we were plotting. Like, oh man, what
1: fake we, till what are we it till you make it.
0: Yeah. Well. Anyway, I I got I got very lucky with the timing that I came up and you know T Y T was the only like sort of left leaning talk out there at the time. Yeah. And David David Pakman too. But I was like, I was in the initial wave. You know, so very lucky with the timing. And then the fact I was like, I'm just going to do this 24 seven every day ever.
1: I and mean, that, that I think too. I think that was the key is you just decided like, no, I'm doing this. I'm going to be super consistent with it. Like, this is just this is it. That's going true. Going for but it. You
0: can't you can't. I'm very humble in the sense that a lot of luck is involved. You know what I mean? I think about what it's like yeah, for somebody for sure, today to try to make. It's like, it's have, everything so stacked against now. you so hard. In yeah. many ways, we're just really lucky. Yeah. All right, well, let's get into, we got some interesting stuff to talk about before Indeed. we get to this uh, interview. So, um, of course, you had, Trump came out and said, I'm going to get arrested on Tuesday, terrible. Left-wing thugs, violent, terrible. <laughs> and um, it turns out that wasn't true. Now, by the way, I think he raised like 150 million dollars. No, was it 150? No, it may have been 1.5. Oh, I way didn't. Way less. <laughs> I think it was, yeah, 150 million would be ridiculous. Yeah, no, I think it was 1.5 million.
1: I look this A- up while you're talking. Yeah,
0: look it up. I saw it on Twitter. They they were okay. like bragging about the fact that they raised 1.5 million. But he didn't get arrested on Tuesday. They were like trying to gin up, you know, like their their followers. But look, I think eventually he will get arrested. He yeah, will be 1.5 indicted. Million. That's going to happen, but at least as of right now, as of the time we're recording this, it hasn't happened yet. Right. Um. And so, but you know, Twitter jumped the gun a little bit. They were having some fun, and they decided, uh, some people decided, let's make some AI deep fakes of Donald Trump getting arrested. And so they put it into various. I don't know if it was whatever programs are out there. Mm-hmm. I'm not familiar with mm-hmm. any. I mean, I know what Chat GPT is. Obviously, I don't think they make right. pictures like this. Yeah. But anyway, this. I mean, this stuff is getting better and better in terms of how it looks. Right. You know. Um. It, I mean, I hate to say this, but I feel like artists are terrified because they, it could do like decent art. You know what I mean? But anyway, so they did the Trump deepfake pictures and it looks, here, we'll we'll throw it up so everybody can see it. Um, I mean, it's good, right? Like I'd say it's good. Yeah. But I, from the second I, I looked at them, even barring the silly ones of Trump running away from them, whatever, I still thought there's something off about it. They still haven't, the uncanny valley thing, there's still an uncanny valley there, in my opinion.
1: I actually didn't get the, off of these pictures. Really? To me, they look, like, just to glance at them, they look very real. Really? Now, the only, like, I, I didn't fall for any of these just because I knew what was going on in the news. So I knew the context and I know knew this technology exists. So it's not like I fell for them, but... I can certainly imagine in a different situation where I wasn't, you know, read in up to the minute about exactly what was happening, potentially falling for them. And what it made me think about is, remember we read that book about the development of advertising and how it's almost like an arms race because the initial... Uh, modes of advertising. It was just like posters, right? And that really worked for a while. And people are like, oh, look at what's on this poster and let me go buy this product. And then that starts to fade in its efficacy. And then, you know, you go to the next, and maybe it's radio ads. And then that really works really well. And then you go to TV ads. And over time, generations become accustomed to these Modes and forms, and Try they're less it. effective on them. So you've yeah. got to up the ante. You got to up the ante. And it's always the older generations who came up with the older iterations of things, which are most easily fooled. So I think about, and I've told this, these stories before, but you know, my dad is a really smart guy. Okay, he has a PhD in physics. Um, not like that didn't just fall off the turnip truck. But during the Obama era, he would get these like unhinged chain emails and take them seriously, right? That was one of the modes of deception at the time. And because he didn't come up in the internet era, he was susceptible to them, even as, you know, an incredibly intelligent, educated person. So that's sort of the way that I look at this development is like, okay, this is like the next phase of the arms race. And I think even people who are our age and older, certainly are going to be susceptible to being fooled by this until we build up some kind of defenses to really question everything that's in front of our eyes and not just accept it at face value.
0: You're sort of making the most important point, which, by the way, has borne out with these fake Trump arrest images. There was an uncomfortable number of people who thought it was real. I mean, you yep. had, one of them was, tweet. I'm not kidding about this, one of them was tweeted by an account called Buttcrack Sports. <laughs> And it had some text and it showed the pictures of Trump getting arrested. Yeah. And there were people uncritically underneath who unironically thought, wow, this is crazy. This is going down. Trump got arrested. And so, like, my feelings on this are, this is going to be bad. This is going to be real bad. I feel like I, I have a pretty good meter for, like, I, I have fallen for some social media stuff before, by the way. Yeah. Like, I'll g- freely admit it. I was in the original wave. Remember when any time a hurricane would hit? Yeah. They would show a picture of like a shark swimming in the street. And they're right. like, oh my God, a shark was just spotted. In the yeah, street. yeah, yeah, yeah. I yeah, fell yeah. for that the first time. Yeah. And then I, I was just like, stupid, stupid, you're so stupid. Right. <laughs> and just like beat it in my own head. And then my default, because my default perspective 99% of the time is it, assume it's bullshit. It's just assume it's bullshit up front. Right. Yeah. And with this, like for me, it was instantaneous. I was like, of course that's not real. Who are we kidding? And I thought, right. I honestly, I don't even think it looks real because the pictures look a little too glossy to me. There's something about them that it's just like, this This ain't right, and it mm-hmm. hit me like that. But the fact that other people were falling for it tells me we're about to enter a wild, wild West era with zero regulation of this stuff, and people, th- this is going to be used in every nefarious way you can imagine. People are going to say stuff and then argue, I didn't say that, that was a deep stake. A, a deep, deep fake. fake and it's going to happen vice versa as well, where they're going to make somebody say something and they didn't say it, but a lot of people are going to believe it. And the lie is going to spread all the way across the world before the truth can get its pants on or whatever the saying goes. Like seriously, this is going to be bad because the boomer generation, the silent generation, even some in generation X are just like, you know, it was, it was one of these things. Yeah. Just immediate. And that's terrifying. Cause now they, they I mean, you've seen the ones where they do it with the voice. Yeah, They have Biden and Obama and Trump playing a video game together and talking. And again, to my ear, it's still a little off. There's something about it that sounds a little robotic or something. It's not perfect. But if you're 72 years old and you're a Facebook uncle and you already believe QAnon or some shit and there's a thing of Biden, come, Biden comes up where he admits to committing some pedophile crime or something, you're going to be like, oh, my God, they got Did him. You yeah. He said it.
1: Yeah, Well, and I even think that the impact is much broader than just like, you know, really elderly people who are very social media naive because you even see it like, you know, you make some like sarcastic joke that you see on Twitter that you see as very clearly satire, very clearly sarcastic. And the number of people who will be in the replies taking you seriously, you're like, wow, you you are not engaging with this medium in the way that it's meant to be engaged with. Because there's just like, you didn't come up with it. You haven't developed the fluency with it. It's never going to be a native language to you. So I think it's it goes a lot further than silent gen, boomer, even gen X. You know, I'm like an old millennial. I think my people will be taken in as well um, because it, it is getting to that level. So especially in the initial transition phase, before people have built up any sort of like immune system to it, there's going to be all kinds of Stuff going on, and I just you know already, guys. Just make sure anything you see, especially if it's something that really like fits too closely your personal preconceived That's notions, thing. people go
0: right for their that preconceived notions. Fe- feeds yeah.
1: into whatever your worldview is. Like, make sure you check it. And by make the way,
0: sure. I'm talking a big game here. I wasn't fooled by that at all, bro. I could tell it was fake. Red, right way, bro. <laughs> well, it turns out it's not that. I bet I guarantee you, within two years. There's going to be deep fake pictures that I'm hook line and sinker I could have sworn it looks 100% real. It's coming. It's co- we are so so close to it. Yeah. I mean when you look at those again I still think there's a little bit of an uncanny valley, but we are so close to overcoming that. Yeah. And man, and by the way, You expect our lawmakers are going to get it together to know how to effectively regulate this and keep everybody sort of safe from the negative repercussions of it? I don't
1: know that you can without, while maintaining, like, a free and open society, too, you know? I mean, there's guardrails you can put on it.
0: Well, yeah, because, look, essentially, it's fraudulent if you— if you say somebody said something that they didn't and that thing is career-destroying, that's defamatory. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Like, there's right. a plenty of examples of like, no, this is just fraudulent. Sure. You know, so... But there are but things like, that will a gonna, lot more
1: borderline than that. Oh, of
0: course. Yeah. And, but my point is, it's going to be total Wild Wild West from now for as long as, as far as I can see. Because also, I mean, when you look at the Supreme Court dealing with, like, tech cases, they're like, how do I log on to Facebook? Mah. Like, they don't, even, <laughs> they don't even know how to do, deal with that. You know what I'm saying? And we're, they're going to deal with... AI stuff and deep fake stuff, there's no way.
1: Yeah, I think a lot about um, because I do think we're living in sort of like a, a golden era of scams. And so I've been thinking a lot about what makes people vulnerable to scams. We talked to CoffeeZilla about this some too. And it is like, you know, if something too neatly fits your worldview. Right, right. Um, Another common one is what they call affinity scams, where you think it's someone who's in your community. So a lot of times, like, religious communities will be vulnerable to this, where it's like, oh, is somebody in my church who offered me this investment deal? Like, of course. And there's an equivalent of that online, of course. If it's someone who's in your circle or in your ideological bubble or whatever, you may be more likely to be, oh, you know, this person who I trust and shares the same views with me uh, said that this was true or is offering me this opportunity. Or it's something that meets some sort of, like, fear, desire, longing that you have. You see this with, like, the crypto guys who you know, are looking for some way to get financially ahead or feel like they have autonomy in their lives. And so they become very susceptible to crypto scams. So I would just say, try to make yourself not an easy mark. Try to identify what your own vulnerabilities are and be skeptical.
0: Yeah. Assume everything's pay. bullshit is, is the default perspective. <laughs> anyway. All right. So now let's talk a little bit about Governor Iran de Sanctimonious. Ro- Rob. Meatball Rob. <laughs> Rob de Sanctimonious. <laughs> Trump called him Rob, for those of you who don't know. And he did, did it in a press, press release, release, which makes it way more funny. Oh,
1: my God. Just leave it
0: in there. It's fine.
1: <laughs> I, I can't help enjoying all of it. Oh, and I know it's all going to end in horror when oh he's back God. in the White House, but right now it's really funny. <laughs> he did.
0: Uh, he launched an attack on DeSantis that was like, first of all, he teased it, which is hilarious.
1: He's yeah.
0: Like, oh, look out. I'm going to have some numbers for like, you. I'm going to release some later. numbers later. Not too good. They're not too
1: good. I like the way he framed it. I'm going to release some numbers. Right, think it's how he phrased it. Just Google search some shit. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) What are you talking about? (laughs) Some staffer compiled it. But low-key, he hit him
0: with, like, arguments that sounded like it was coming from, uh, I was going to (laughs) say DeSantis' left. It was like, you rank like 45th in education. You have a horrible education system over there. Were you bragging about your education system for? Your crime numbers are terrible. I've never seen anything like it. Honestly, you're just a mediocre governor, but you have phenomenal PR.
1: Average governor, that's
0: what he said. Like, oh yeah, yeah, average. Average. I'm reading it, I'm like, he's spitting right now.
1: Yeah. He's spitting. Yeah, it was, the COVID death thing in particular sounded like a democratic attack, you know? It was like, like, oh. "Oh." we did
0: so good on COVID. Why did all these people die? Fourth worst in the country. yeah, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah. I was like, I didn't even know some of these things that he's hit him with. That's no, hilarious. It was
1: a way better attack than I honestly have seen. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, no, it's true. It's true. So, uh, but anyway, this this is all connected, by the way. Yeah. Because, th- and this is my perspective, I'm curious what you think. Because he's in Trump's sights right now. Like yes. he's in the scope. Yeah. He feels like, fuck, like I gotta do something. But yeah. He wanna He sees to war, the
1: poll numbers. He sees the poll numbers going, going down.
0: down. He knows if he unleashes on Trump in a similar way lose, right? Yeah. So he's trying to balance this thing of like, I'm going to do the high road, but also still take some pot shots here because he's killing me now. But he's like, I know. I'll go back to my one trick that I do all the time. That's a great point. Which is no matter what, culture war stuff. Let's do it. Let's lean into it. I'm the culture war guy. I trigger the left. I trigger the libs, right? Yeah. And so what does he do? You can tell everybody.
1: Um, So he is expanding now the don't say gay, so-called don't say gay law to all grades. Um, This is apparently something he didn't even need to take legislative action to do. It's just like an expansion of the rule by the state education department, which, of course, is run by his cronies. So now it's no longer just like, oh, my God, save the little children. It's like, Mm -hmm. no, no, all the way up until you're a senior in high school at 18 years old that we have to, you know, have this legislation into place. But I think you're absolutely right about the political modifications of it. So just, just so everybody understands what
0: that means. Now, all the way up until 12th grade, you can't have a conversation about sexual orientation or gender identity. Yep. All the way up until 12th grade, you're not supposed to Talk about that or bring that up.
1: Yeah, and part of what is so pernicious about this law, they'll frame it as, oh, is this just about parental choice or whatever? It's written in this very intentionally vague way where it could could be construed, and I think- Right, understandably could be construed as saying, oh, you can't even have a picture of a same-sex spouse on your desk. Like, that's how far-reaching this could potentially be. So it was written in a way to effectively scare teachers out of even mentioning anything remotely related to sexual orientation or gender identity. And that's right. It has worked. And see, the thing is,
0: look, before Like you said, there were many issues with the law. I think you did a great job of explaining what the problem was with the original law. Yeah. That it's so vague and it's, the whole point is to like scare the teachers into overreaching to make sure they don't run afoul of the law. Mm -hmm. So you don't even have, if you're a gay teacher, you can't have a picture of you and your spouse on the desk, et cetera. But like, those were the arguments that people like you and me made in response to that law. Because the argument that they, the Republicans were making and DeSantis was making is like, hey, man, any reasonable person thinks that if you're dealing with the first grader, you don't say anything about gender, you don't say anything about sex. What are you, in favor- you're in favor of teaching a first grader, that stuff? Like, so, in other words, my point here is, intuitively, they had an argument that to a normie sounded stronger. Yes. Intuit, but now, I think he massively overreached. This isn't the same. This is like, you know, Matt Walsh originally and, and Michael Knowles originally, they're like, oh, we just don't think kids should be transitioning. That's our whole point. And everybody goes, okay, all right, that seems kind of reasonable. That's the normie perspective. But then they let the mask slip. And you had Matt Walsh on Twitter saying he thinks it should be illegal for a doctor to perform the surgery even for adults. You have Michael Knowles who literally just did the same thing this week. He came out and said, I think the surgery should be illegal even for adults. So what's happening here, guys, is they are letting the mask slip too much. They knew how to like, mask it and make it only about kids and we're just trying to protect the kids and the left is you know trying to destroy uh the innocent youth that our children represent but now it's like no this is what it's really about this is what it's really up till 12th grade you can't talk about sexual orientation are you insane are you insane you're you're telling me that an 11th grader or a 12th grader isn't already super duper familiar with all these different things They have have their own sexuality is developed. What are we talking about here? Right.
1: And to pretend like that's not real. I mean, you are living in (laughs) a a fantasy uh, unreality. I looked it up just to see how Florida voters, not national, but just Florida voters, felt about the original iteration of Don't Say Gay, which I agree with you from a normie, like political messaging standpoint. It's about the kids. They had a stronger leg to stand on. So even with that, in terms of independent voters, they were still opposed to it. Now, it was fairly close. It was 49 to 43 in terms of independent voters. And then you had a pretty partisan split. So 76 percent of Dems were opposed to it. 28 percent of Republicans are actually opposed to it, which is significant, like a third of Republicans even were opposed Mm -hmm. to it. So it's not even like the original iteration of the law was popular. It wasn't. It was controversial. It was underwater. But to go back to your political point, he clearly saw this as part of how he was able to initially eat into some of Trump's edge and gain a national following and gain in terms of a national Republican base. But-
0: whole, It's his only trick. But-
1: I just, do you say, I don't think this is going to work. Hell, no. Because, right now, no, no way it's going to work. Right, exactly. I mean, at this point, I think you've gotten everything you can get politically with the Republican base out of this particular move. And one thing that I've noted with the the Trump-DeSantis to DeSantis dynamic is Trump is going all in on him. You know, not Non-stop. the policy case laying Non-stop. it out, but then also like alleging that maybe he's also a gay groomer. I mean- There's just, like, no holds barred, right? No limit to what Trump will say about him. DeSantis will do these little tiny, like, passive-aggressive jabs where he doesn't even say Trump's name. I wouldn't know
0: anything about paying hush money to a porn star that I allegedly had an affair with. I wouldn't know anything about that.
1: And the reaction to that from not just MAGA, but some people who were sort of, like, a little bit pro-DeSantis, but still Mm -hmm. sympathetic to Trump— They were so furious that he even did that little bit of a jab at Trump because they're like, the president is under assault by a George Soros DA and how dare you, like, choose this time to attack him relentlessly. It's like, you know, Trump did just, like, call him a groomer and he makes this little jab and you're freaking out about it. So he's in a very difficult position right now. But look, that's the...
0: That's what Trump is so good at. And honestly, it's like only Trump who gets away with it. Right. So if you remember the very first time Trump unleashed on DeSantis. Yeah. Everybody was like, hey, whoa, what are you doing? Even Republicans were like, you're going too far, bro. Like, relax, reel it in a little bit. Yeah. But then he does it a second time. And yeah. then he does it a third time. Yeah. And then he does it a fourth time. And then he does it five days a week for like four weeks straight. Right. And at some point in there, you just start going, <laughs> <laughs> At some point in there, just like, all right, he's kind of right.
1: and then people that might not be right, but it's funny. (laughs) And then people
0: eventually are like, that's just Trump being Trump. But what he does is on a daily basis, the barrage of attack, he just chips away and chips away. And each day, it's like he drops 1.2 percentage points. And the next thing you know, he dropped like 25 points from the last time a poll came out. And the other thing is, look, and this is the part a lot of people won't admit. I'll admit it. It's the substance of his attacks that work. He keeps it, Ron DeSanctimonious wants to raise the age for Medicare and Social Security, he wants to raise it to 70 years old. I would never, I want to protect it. That's a powerful issue to him. Yeah. Even the thing like, hey, you're you're a groomer. He was a teacher and did hang out with the underage girls at a party. There is like a, photo. like a Bro, bro. <laughs> it's not a good look. Bro, now look, It. the thing about Trump though also is he doesn't, like hypocrisy is not a thing to him. He doesn't yeah. care. So, the fact that over 20 women have accused him of sexual assault and sexual harassment or that and there's things photos up to
1: rape of him with Jeffrey Epstein, Jeffrey Epstein <laughs> yeah, It doesn't but matter. But, like, he doesn't
0: care. And he knows the others will never stoop. Well, DeSantis as well. can't get away with he it. He can't get away with it. Because you can right. see
1: when he even the is like, I don't know asymmetry. anything about the hush money. He's like, How dare? How oh. could you attack our president?
0: And then the new one, did you yeah. see the new one when he was interviewing with Piers Morgan? He was asked, so he's like, look, my leadership style is a lot different. I, I surround myself with people who have the same agenda as I do. I don't, and what did he say? There was one other part of it that was kind of interesting, but I'm, I'm blanking on it right now. Oh, he said you could call him, uh, Piers Morgan asked him if he likes the name De Yeah, He laughs and he's like, yeah, you know, I don't know what it means. It's kind of funny. I guess I like it, but you can call me whatever you want as long as you also call me a winner. Mm-hmm. And it's like, Eh. You're doing as good as you can given the circumstances, but you're still dropping in the polls.
1: <laughs> I mean, that's a, that's the a thing is, that I, I want to be fair about is I don't know that there is a winning hand for him to play. I really don't.
0: That's like, a great point. Yes, I. I it's a the the national stuff unfolding is making that the case. It's like that's a flower coming to true. blossom in the spring. Like that it's just is true. happening because when you have Trump being the ire of the DA and he's under all these, le- that's the only
1: thing that's going to circle the wagons from, from the Republican that's base circling the wagons. He's the center of attention. He still has this hold on the Republican base. And so, you know, I mean, we, we sort of laugh at Desantis's somewhat flailing attempts to like meekly punch back or whatever. But if he, what can you do? If you went guns blazing, Trump will destroy you. Like you can't, That's you will, saying. you will not win at that game. You will not win at that game. If you say nothing, then you look like even more of a cuck than you yep, already yep, do. Yep, yep, there is yep. no winning strategy here. I've Sort of the best course is what he's pursuing, which is like, let me kind of put myself in position to maintain number two and hope something happens to take this guy down because I'm not going to be the person who's capable of doing that.
0: See, I think that point absolutely nails it. You just, that's exactly how I feel about it. Like, I look at how he's acting, it's not embarrassing like Jeb Bush was or Marco Rubio was, it yeah. was just like immediate, like, oh, like,
1: yeah, you know, like, like it's not hard that. to watch. Like, it's, yeah.
0: It's as good as he can possibly do given the circumstance. But given the circumstance, Trump's rising 10 points, 15 points, whatever it might be. Yeah. And there's just no escaping that. So, you know, his strategy isn't wrong. Like, I'll just sort of hang out here and do a little jab every now and then, but try to be above the fray and just hope something happens. That's not wrong, but it's just, I think he knows he's, he's got, you know, he's playing poker and he's, he's got a 15% shot on the river to win. Mm. You know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. that it just is what it
1: is. Yeah. Yeah, hope is not a strategy. But I think no. that's all thats all he's really got at this point. Listen, that's things can got. change. You never know. Trump is just as capable of like shooting himself in the dick as he yeah. is being a phenomenal politician as he is right now. That's but, true. And he could also yeah.
0: literally end up in prison potentially. Yeah, But this is not landing. this the, the thing DeSantis did is not landing anywhere near. When he first did the don't say gay bill and the yeah. woke thing and this was on right wing Twitter, it was like,
1: oh, oh, right. yeah. Well, Now,
0: I haven't seen anything on this. You don't see these people cheerleading it it, because he overreaches. We're talking about 12th graders now.
1: It's not only that. It's also that the libs have seen this play before. So they're also not melting down in the same way, which is what gives the right wing like the energy of like, oh, we got to defend this guy Mm -hmm. and makes them like him more. So neither part is playing into him. Sagar actually made this point on um, our show, which is apparently – DeSantis really wants him to, to wait until the Florida legislative session is through so that he can have more of these like policy wins that he thinks are his um, his strategy to like get back on top. And it's just it's very Elizabeth Warren kind of vibes. Like, let me run. On, I'm going to have a white paper. I going to run on policy. And as he indicated to Piers Morgan, like, I'm going to have the best personnel and I know how to run the government. I don't think that's uh, where the hearts yeah, and minds the show. of the Republican base are. It's the,
0: show. it's the show. And Trump, nobody puts on a show like Trump. Like, it's just, that's just, it is what it is.
1: Yeah. There's no way around that. No.
0: So, anyway.
1: Good luck, Rob.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Meatball Ron. Many call him Meatball Ron. I would never, I would never call him that, but many call him that.
1: Another day we'll debate the distinct, demonious nickname because I think we have different tastes on that. You think it's good? I actually do you think it's You
0: good? think it's better than Meatball Ron?
1: I don't know that it's better than Meatball Ron. I mean, Meatball Ron is. That's a classic. Pudding Ron. That's an instant classic.
0: Pudding Ron is actually my favorite. <laughs> I sent Crystal a tweet the other day because, you know, the story came out of DeSantis eating pudding with three fingers on an airplane or something. Yeah. Which, by the way, got bigger than I expected it to. I didn't even cover it, but it got bigger than I expected it I to. I mean, it's
1: just a horror. It's like Amy, uh, what's her face, Klobuchar with the comb and the salad. Right. Y'all. It's such a horrifying image yeah. that you just, like, oh, you know. But
0: somebody did like a fake Trump thing in the debate where he was he would talk about this theoretically and be like, Ron, I saw you backstage. You were eating the pudding. I saw you, you were eating the pudding. <laughs> like a boy. You had three fingers, you are using three fingers. It was disgusting. <laughs> <laughs> and the person just nailed the cadence and the yeah, rhythm so perfectly. I laughed so hard when I first read that tweet. Yeah. Shout out to whoever did that tweet. We yes.
1: Yeah. Anyway, all right, let's get to where I'm putting Ron to some very serious, substantive discussions here. Matthew Zeitlin, he is a fantastic journalist with Grid News. Let's talk to him about the Fed, Silicon Valley bailouts, and so much more. Matthew, welcome. Great to have you.
2: Thanks so much. I'm uh, glad to be here.
1: Yeah, of course. Uh, Let's start with the most recent news, which is the Fed had a pretty momentous decision to make this week, whether they were going to continue on the path of hiking interest rates, given the fact that those interest rate hikes contributed to the meltdown of at least Silicon Valley Bank, and it appears to have put some pressure on other banks as well. Um, They decided to hike rates by a quarter of a point. What do you make of the decision?
2: Yeah, they were kind of stuck in a hard place because if you remember in kind of the week running up to the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank, they were pretty heavily indicating that they were pretty worried about inflation, that the inflation numbers had gotten worse in kind of the previous few weeks. And the market was really leaning towards a 50 basis point hike, which would have been an increase from what it was before. And they were kind of pushed into a hard place because not only are those interest rate policies uh, contributing to the financial kind of uh, issues that banks are having... Uh, when you have a banking crisis, it kind of acts like an interest rate hike in that um, there's less financial activity. People are less likely to lend out money. It kind of hurts the economy. And uh, Jay Powell said this that uh, the banking situation was kind of like a quarter point hike already. Mm. So if you kind of add the banking situation is acting like a quarter basis, a quarter point hike. Then kind of twenty five basis points is is sort of the Fed staying on track in its own way.
1: Yeah. I mean, of course, they say that with like a lot of confidence. The truth is nobody knows, right? I mean, they're guessing, right? When he's, oh, it's the banking crisis. Yeah, it's about a quarter of a point. If we do our own quarter of a point, this will be roughly on track the same place. But they don't really know that.
2: Yeah. I think one thing we've learned about the Fed in, in the last year or so, um, as they've been hiking rates, is that They like to call it data-dependent. Another way of saying this is that they're kind of making it up as they go along. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And I don't mean that in kind of a derogatory way, just that the state of the economy is very uncertain and changes kind of month to month. You know, we saw this kind of towards the end of last year, beginning of this year. There's a lot of data showing that inflation was slowing down pretty substantially. Mm -hmm. That kind of reversed. um, It kind of started speeding up again. And this is kind of just what the Fed has to deal with. And the other thing that's hugely uncertain which they do not have a handle on, I think they would admit this, is that the effects of the interest rate hikes, they are not immediate, except on some part, maybe on the financial markets, they're immediate. But on the real economy, uh, the effects are highly uncertain, and they happen in weird times. And, uh, you know, I, one could say that the collapse of these banks is a downstream effect of the fastest rate hiking cycle in decades. And was the Fed forecasting bank failures of this scale, the largest bank failure since 2008? Absolutely not, but it's something that they now have to deal with. So the state of the economy is highly uncertain and the effects of interest rate hikes are highly uncertain. So they're in a really tricky situation.
0: I was a little surprised that uh, they hiked interest rates at all uh, given Mm -hmm. what's been unfolding in the economy. And so, I mean, my takeaway, and you could tell me whether or not this is correct, this is just like a normie point of view, is that they still want to increase unemployment nominally to get inflation under control. But they will also mm-hmm. clearly do like targeted quantitative easing slash bailouts for banks. So it seems like they're trying to have both worlds uh, addressed here. One where mm-hmm. it's like you know more rugged individualism for regular people. We're gonna we're gonna sacrifice you with the altar of a better overall economy. It, this is in their mind. But for the banks, it's like you know the message is quite the opposite. The the message is like. There is no moral hazard. We don't take that seriously. We're going to backstop you no matter what. Do you agree with that?
2: Yeah. So if you look at the Fed's projections of the economy, which incorporates their own expectations for interest rates, which are obviously very affected by their own policy. They forecast about a, a one point increase in unemployment over the next year or so. And that could be a million more people unemployed. And this is like, this is what they anticipate will happen. They don't forecast any bank failures, obviously. So, yeah, I mean, um, there is an issue where it's like if unemployment were to start rising, the Fed would probably they I don't know if Jay Powell would be out there saying this is good, but I don't huh. think it would really change the path of their interest rate policy very much. Yeah. Whereas when bank failures happen, they they jump into uh they jump into motion. Now, I think the way you can kind of try to finesse this from their perspective is that there's just different tools. Like the Fed has a tool, you know, the Fed has essentially three mandates, uh, maximum maximum employment. Uh, low and stable inflation, and financial stability. And I think the one idea is that interest rates are supposed to be the tool by which they affect employment and inflation. And then everything else is kind of financial stability. So, you know, lending the discount window, lending to banks, uh, setting up these special programs for lending to banks. That's kind of the other tool. So what they're trying to do and what the European Central Bank also did an interest rate hike recently is trying to do is kind of use different tools to affect different parts of, to enact different parts of their mandate. But I think it's just totally true that like um, the Fed, this is what was called a quote unquote dovish hike. And it's like the Fed made it pretty clear that they were kind of freaked out by this banking situation and that it made them think about their monetary policy in a different way. And I don't think they would feel that way if unemployment was up by a half point, you know, 500,000 people on net were thrown out of work. I don't think it would really affect. Interest rate policies. Yeah, I mean
1: that was made pretty clear in the exchange that Elizabeth Warren or one of the exchanges that Elizabeth Warren had with Jay Powell, where he called, um, you know, that increase in unemployment of you know potentially millions of workers losing their jobs, "quote unquote" unintended consequences, um, which is you know very sort of casual way of dismissing that you've that people's lives are ruined and there's massive financial wreckage created there. And on the other hand, as you point out, you know, inflation, this was his defense, like look, nobody wants that, but inflation is bad for everyone. So we have to do what we can do to get it under control. My question is whether the tool that they have at their disposal is actually even working, given the fact that uh, you know, there's a lot of studies that that show a lot of price inflation has been due to corporate price gouging, a lot of it continues to be issues with the supply chain. The numbers that I saw said only 8% has to do with wage increases, which makes sense when you consider that most workers aren't actually getting a wage increase sufficient to keep up That's with inflation. Right. Yep. So it sort of undercuts the idea that just hiking interest rates and just spiking unemployment is actually even going to deal with the problem that they claim to want to address. And I think that also is, you know, demonstrated by the fact that it hasn't been successful yet.
2: And this is what I was talking about earlier. The effects of interest rate hikes are super uncertain. and. Um, if it were the Fed's goal to increase unemployment, they failed. Unemployment is is still quite low, which I mean, from many perspectives is a really, really good thing, but they're kind of totally okay with it going higher, whether it will is remains to be seen. But yeah, I mean, um, the Fed has limited tools and they kind of lean on the ones they have to try to affect the results they want. And it's just not clear if that's working. I mean, the opposite problem was happening in the 2010s, um, it's hard to remember now, but there were complaints about inflation being too low. It was stubbornly below the 2% target. It was at 1.7. It was, you know, 1. 1.5, 1. 1.7. And the Fed was kind of pushing with what it could. It kept interest rates quite low. It did quantitative easing and unemployment very slowly came down and, um, inflation stayed below 2%. And if you notice, like what really changed the story of unemployment is during the, uh, Trump administration, actually, um, people kind of thought that unemployment couldn't go any lower without causing inflation. And what happened is that um, the fiscal policy situation really changed. Because if you remember, you know, starting after the first midterm of, of, of Obama's first term, you had Republicans in the House. And then by 2014, 2014 election, so by 2015, you had, uh, Senate, uh, Republican senators, and you had these huge standoffs over spending, and you had actual restrictions in fiscal policy from the Budget Control Act, from that first debt ceiling stand down. And when it when it kind of flipped, where uh, Trump needed Democratic votes in the Senate and also in the House, even as a Republican Senate majority, to get um, budgets passed, the way Republicans and Democrats agree on budgets, they just agreed to start spending on everything. They bust through the caps, you know, Trump wanted more defense spending, Pelosi wanted more domestic spending, they agreed on it. And unemployment got really, really low to the point where it was, you know, the lowest ever, I think almost before the um, before the coronavirus recession happened. And this really only accelerated once Democrats took back the House. So um, I think you really often have to look for fiscal policy to have huge effects on unemployment. And that's, uh, that's not really what's going on right now. So the Fed is really, again, trying really hard. Um, and it's not clear if it's working. Or the effects that it is having are kind of very limited. You know, it's limited to the housing market, it's limited to the stock market. But as opposed so- to unemployment and inflation those other dynamics seem super important.
0: Hmm. So um, one of the things that really, really surprised me, and I covered this on my show, is the back and forth between Ooh. Elizabeth Warren and Jerome Powell. And um, it, like just the extent to which Jerome Powell didn't have a response to the argument that um, corporate price gouging and the supply chain are you know, responsible for a majority of the inflation and so perhaps mm-hmm. just trying to raise unemployment. That's, that's not the way to go about this. <laughs> Yeah. Can you steel man their case? Because he appeared totally incapable of defending their actions given those yeah. other facts, which which they just ignore. They just ignore that corporate price gouging and the supply chain might be responsible for most of inflation. So is it possible to like steel man their argument or are they so so wrong that you can't even come up with anything?
2: I think there's two things to say. One is that, um, on matters of corporate concentration and price setting behavior in corporations, that's oftentimes related to the competition that they're facing or not facing. The Fed doesn't have tools really to address that. So even if it, let's imagine, even if it were the case that Jay Powell believed that corporate price gouging, concentration, supply chain issues were what was really causing inflation, which I don't think he does think that, but let's say he did. You can see from his perspective where he wouldn't want to come out and say that because the tools to address that stuff largely lie in Congress's hands. It's legislative. It's regulatory too, but it's not bank regulation, which the Fed does. It's competition regulation, which the FTC does. So he doesn't want to say that he is, you know, impotent to affect this thing. The second thing I would say is that I think an argument you could make is that when inflation is rising, it becomes easier for companies who do have market power. To raise prices without the kind of blowback they would have gotten in yeah. the mid 2010s. I mean, the question you then have to ask is like, if if it's corporate power, is corporate price gouging? Why were price increases so mild in the 2010s? Like, what changed? It could have been COVID. It could have been. Um, the same Joe Weisenthal at Bloomberg has said that maybe it was the invasion of Ukraine, uh, the Russian invasion of Ukraine, just kind of like reset everyone's expectations for the economy being more unstable. And it gave people the opportunity to raise prices in a way that they wouldn't have before. So I think there's definitely kind of like a chicken and the egg type issue going on where it's like, what are the conditions of the last few years such that companies have felt more able to raise prices in a way they wouldn't be in the 2010s? And I think what Jerome Powell thinks is that if we were to get inflation under control through we to raise interest rates and kind of set expectations such that like inflation is coming down and it'll be hard and, but we're going to do it. Um, Companies will not be able to raise prices as much. But again, that's like such an un- everything here is so unproven, and the track record of interest rate hikes to do this in this present situation is at best, again, unproven. If not, if not. There is straight up unable to. We just don't know. But that's what I would say,
1: Matthew. Exp- um... If I'm wrong, correct me on this, but my understanding is there uh, maybe other reasons to raise rates that are separate and apart from inflation and unemployment, which is, you know, it's fairly unprecedented. They've had basically like zero interest rates for a while. You had this Mm -hmm. during the financial crash. Then you go back to this, you know, these extraordinarily uh, easy money policies uh, after the coronavirus recession. And so there was always an expectation like, all right, we're going to have to walk back from this ledge at Mm -hmm. some point because that policy also created a lot of distortions in the economy. And part of the Silicon Valley bank collapse is a reflection of this overall like tech winter that you're seeing, which is Mm -hmm. in itself a correction from a lot of basically wild speculation in in terms of some of these companies. And, you know, they're getting Mm -hmm. money thrown at them, whether they really are deserving or not. The expectation, you'll figure out how to make a profit years down the road. You've got all these zombie companies that are able to just fund themselves, not because they have a profitable business model, but because money is so cheap, they're able to just take on more loans and keep the thing going. So there was also a necessary correction there is my understanding. And, and these policies also, because the Fed's tools are limited and very effective for dealing with the top end of the economy, but can't really do anything for the lower end of the economy, they also help to fuel inequality. So I, I don't want to lose the nuance because there was a really necessary correction that needed to be made there. And you see some things that, in my view, are kind of positive, like you know the, the largest billionaires have seen their net worth kind of clipped. Um, I don't cheer for anybody to lose their jobs, but you see you know in Silicon Valley, there's a real uh, difference in terms of uh, the type of valuations and the type of funding that is ultimately available. So can you just talk about that piece of the the impact that the Fed is having here as well?
2: Yeah, so I think if you kind of rewind um, to the t- mid kind of mid 2010s there was an interest rate rising cycle. And uh under Yellen and Powell, it was eventually kind of reversed. But I think that was that's I think when they were doing that, when those interest rate hikes were happening, they were trying to deal with the issues that you were talking about. Yeah. So if you kind of your thought was that rates have been too low for too long, they need to quote unquote normalize, um, you would bring up rates, but you do it very slowly. Um right. you do not have these seventy five consecutive, many 75 basis point hikes in a row. I mean, this is the fastest rate rising cycle in decades. Yeah. So um Those are kind of different. You want to normalize, you normalize. But we're not trying to normalize right now. We're trying, what the Fed is trying to do is bring down inflation. And that requires, in their minds, very fast um, rate hikes. And as to your point about kind of the froth, I think as they call it, about Mm -hmm. tech and VC. um, Yeah, I mean, these are very interest rate dependent businesses. And it makes sense. Why? Because when interest rates are zero, what that basically means is that a dollar today is kind of worth the same in the eyes of an investor as like a dollar from 20 years ago. So losing money in the present to kind of have a chance to make a ton of money in the future is like a pretty good bet. Yep. And so there was a lot of money flooding into these kind of speculative projects. I think the weird, more interesting question is why these big tech companies expanded so much, mm. you know, doubling headcount or in three years or something. Us and then really taking it up during the uh, COVID, you know, 2020, 2021. And I think they're. And, uh, I think some of it was because they were almost running internal VC firms where they were spent where they were funding very speculative projects. I mean, the best example of this is the tens of billions of dollars—not hundreds of billions—I think tens of billions—spent on the metaverse and AI and uh, um, you know uh, virtual augmented reality at Facebook, which they're mm. kind of paring back, for these moonshot projects at Google. But now it's the situation's gone so severe in the tech industry that you know, in Amazon, Facebook. Google, they're kind of cutting back into pretty core stuff as well. So mm. there's there's a little more going on here than just a simple, oh, let's not do this crazy speculative stuff anymore. It's also the kind of business model is being really reconsidered. The other thing you have to know is, remember, is that um, tech companies use their rising stock price as a way to kind of fund expansion and pay their employees. So in a world where stock price has kind of stagnated or gone down, the entire kind of business structure really changes and it kind of requires them... To shrink. I mean, and to your point, for a lot, inequality is actually really interesting. So it was a big complaint during kind of low interest rate years,
1: yeah. that
2: they were it was increasing inequality. The idea being that uh, low interest rates are good for asset holders, you know, it makes stock prices go up and or real estate or whatever. Um, yeah, and that stuff is obviously concentrated in the hands of the wealth, you know the wealthier own more stocks and real estate and stuff disproportionately to their numbers. And so interest rates go down. Asset prices go up, asset values go up, wealth inequality increases. Um, I was always kind of skeptical. I mean, this is just kind of true mathematically, but I was kind of skeptical of the implications of that precisely because my expectation is that if interest rates were to go up a lot, unemployment would go up a lot. And like wealth inequality would go... A world, you know, a world with like three and a half percent unemployment and high stock prices would have more quote unquote wealth inequality than a world with 5.5% unemployment and stock prices that went fell by a third. But like, would that be better for the worse off people just because the math on wealth inequality changed? Not necessarily. I don't think it would be at all. Yeah. But we're actually in a very strange situation now, Crystal, where the stock prices have come down substantially, even though they've gone up a little this year. But overall, you know, the NASDAQ is down something a quarter from its all-time high. But unemployment, (laughs) despite the Fed's best efforts, remains quite low. So I think we're almost, I mean... Inflation is eating into the wages of of people, but in terms of like unemployment being low and asset prices being down, we're in kind of like a golden Goldilocks era from a kind of certain kind of more populist perspective, which is I think is something no one really anticipated and could change. But just you know, it just goes to show that like uh, predicting the future of the economies is very very hard, and yeah. I think that's a lesson I've taken from this is just to have more humility about the effects of economic policy.
0: Okay, yeah, I think that's so. Fair from my from my normie perspective though and correct me if i'm wrong the sense yep. i get is eventually the chickens are going to come home to roost and continuing to jack these interest rates there's going to be a delayed impact like a latency period before mm-hmm. unemployment i think spikes up cuz and you could make some analogies to like 2008 the subprime mortgage crisis the great recession they were having a party for a very very long time like the the deregulation mm-hmm. happened way before the impacts of that deregulation set in. So is that normie perspective viable? Like, is that, is that, you know, the most likely scenario to unfold?
2: First of all, I think you should give yourself some credit. What you call the normie perspective is actually an idea from uh, Milton Friedman, of all people, that monetary policy works with, quote, long and variable lags, that monetary policy takes a long time to work, and you don't know exactly when it will happen. So you are in line with uh, the world's most famous uh, free market economist on that Then perspective. I know I'm wrong. <laughs> <laughs>
1: then
0: I know
2: I'm wrong. Milton has never
0: been right about anything. Thank you very much. Anyway, I'm sorry.
2: Go ahead. Um, yeah, I mean, I guess like it seems hard to imagine that interest rate hikes of this pace wouldn't eventually cause unemployment to rise. It would be very strange. We'd have to like really re-examine a lot of what we think about the economy. But I think we should um, consider that... Uh, you know, un- inflation has, since infl- since inflation peaked last summer, it has fallen by something like a third. Substant- that's substantially more than unemployment has gone up. It's barely gone up at all. So maybe there is something that's kind of working out here. Um, the last six weeks or so has made that seem less likely because inflation has kind of picked up again. And then obviously we had a banking crisis. So, um, but yeah, just in general, the idea that it takes a long time for monetary policy to work its way through the system is not... Um, it's not a bad idea at all. Like it happens. It's something people think about. And as your point about subprime, I mean, the subprime market started floundering, if not reversing kind of 2004, 2005, 2006. But uh, obviously the, and then the recession started in late 2007 and Lehman Brothers collapsed in September 2008, which is when things really started to get quite bad. So these kind of feedbacks between the quote unquote real economies, that'd be like the subprime market collapsing in the mid 2000s, and then the financial sector, which would be the late 2000 and the economy as a whole, um, they're, the, the stuff matters. But the scale and time frame on which it matters is so hard to predict beforehand.
0: So, uh, it, entertain another normie perspective I have here. but um, <laughs> So, let's just assume for a second, interest rates keep going up. Unemployment mm-hmm. eventually starts to go up. Um, yeah. But inflation keeps rising a little bit then we're talking about stagflation. Is that mm-hmm. on the table? Because that was I remember doing some commentary um in the wake of interest rates going up when I became convinced like, hey, this isn't the right tool to impact this because it's mm-hmm. corporate price gouging, you like a windfall profits tax is much better. And my, you know, my commentary on my show was like, I'm actually scared of stagflation now. So is that on the table?
2: Stagflation, I think, is generally considered from a macroeconomics perspective to be like the worst thing that can happen because right. At least like at least from kind of a mechanistic perspective, it's like, oh, if inflation's high, at least unemployment will be low. So like someone's benefiting. Most central, most central bankers don't think that way, but like it's an option out there. Stagflation is the worst of both worlds. Um, is that possible? It's definitely possible, but one thing I would just point out is that growth, real economic growth, still seems it's definitely slowed down a lot from 2021 when it was super high because we were recovering from COVID. Um, but it's still, it's still, it's still pretty high. Um, I think a lot would have to change such that we would enter a outright recessionary period, and uh, I, you know, predictions about the future are hard. But uh, my read is that it wouldn't happen. But again, if we did have stagflation, oof, it would be really bad because uh, <laughs> I think uh, the interest rate, the, you know, the interest rate hikes. I think it's so hard to get them off track on interest rate hikes. I mean, even a banking crisis wasn't able to do it, and so I think rising unemployment also wouldn't stop them if inflation were still high. So I think that would be something that'd be really, really bad. And I, I, all I can say is I hope that doesn't happen. I mean, but obviously it's on the table just because, you know, if there's inflation, there's a possibility of stagflation. But we have not gotten stagnation yet.
1: One of the things that was galling to watch um, from my perspective— about the, um, you know, quick bailout of SVB and Signature and these it's wealthy, not a bailout. wealthy, we can get to <laughs> okay. that in a minute. Wealthy okay. deposit and all this mm-hmm. is, you can see this happen repeatedly throughout history. Where when it's the banking system, when it's in general, in the interest of wealthy people. We actually have architecture in place that is very responsive. And over the course of the weekend, they could take dramatic action and effectively remake the banking system in ways that even apparently the Treasury Secretary and the Fed chair still haven't totally wrapped their heads around. We'll get to that in a moment. Is there a way um, without, you know, just actually having a Congress that is capable of functioning in a similarly nimble way? But is there a way to leverage those institutions for the benefit of ordinary people? For example, you know, one suggestion I've seen is the idea of Fed accounts. Uh, I think it was Ryan Cooper at uh, American Prospect wrote up this particular concept where it's like, okay, it doesn't just have to be banks that have accounts with the Fed any ordinary American citizen could, then you would benefit in your savings account when interest rates were hiked. You would solve the problem of underbanking. You could have uh, free, like, you know, transactions between these accounts when the government issues stimmy checks, they instantly go in. So there's a lot of potential benefits here. Do you think there are other ways that the Fed could be reformed so that it would have more tools that could potentially benefit regular people?
2: Yeah, I think... um and you mentioned kind of the advantage of having bank accounts at the Fed, which is something that people have been thinking about for a while, it's an idea that's obviously picked up steam recently because everyone sees how closely connected the normal banking system is to the Federal Reserve, is that um, in, the, in the example you gave, you still mentioned stimulus checks, for example, coming straight to those bank accounts. And if you had a Fed account, you know, there'd be less fees, it'd be easier to get to, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But it's still, in that example, Congress doing the heavy lifting to do fiscal policy. And um, I think the Fed is very resistant to doing what it thinks is fiscal policy and always tries to design programs to at least provide a fig leaf that they are just doing lending programs and not, um, and not taxpayer-funded fiscal policy programs. Mm-hmm. And in March 2020, because of the severity of the COVID crisis and the alignment of Congress, Congress actually was able to spend money very, very quickly and get mm-hmm. it out to people mm-hmm. on the scale of hundreds of billions, if not trillions of dollars. So it is possible. Um, but yeah, I think what Fed accounts would do is kind of solve some issues in the banking system, but to kind of really remake social policy, there are things you could do through the Fed, but like the our institutions are so set up not to do that and so against the kind of central banker ethos that um Congress would really have to act and either start telling the Fed what to do exactly or kind of take on that burden. Um I don't want to bore your listeners, but a little history lesson might be helpful here. This entire idea that the Fed should lend to banks that are having liquidity issues, i.e. like they have lots of assets, but then there's just too many people asking for their money back. Um,
1: mm-hmm.
2: Kind of what happened to Silicon Valley Bank has been happening kind of across the mid-sized banking system. The idea is that what the Fed should do or central bank should do is take in their assets, you know, these, these loans, these bonds that they own, and then lend them money. So it kind of turns a long-term asset into a short-term one, which lets them kind of survive and operate. This idea um, comes from 19th century uh, England, this guy Walter Badgett, um, the editor of The Economist and a very important English political theorist. And at the time, uh, 19th century England, as anyone who's read a Charles Dickens novels knows, it had basically no social policy. There was no welfare. There was barely any welfare state. There was barely any support fiscal policy for regular people. I and mean, mm. to the extent there was such a thing as fiscal policy was funding the military. And so I think it shows that like at the very kind of core of how central banking works in modern economies and how central bankers themselves think about it, this massive support on the scale of hundreds of billions or not trillions of dollars for banks in the form of loans can coexist with a very threadbare welfare state or even a non-existent one. So I think you, you really have to have this kind of conceptual breakthrough to get the Fed and Congress to kind of work together. And a modern monetary theorist would kind of say that it already is like this, and there's kind of this veil over how the Fed works. But it would really require a conceptual breakthrough. And obviously, I think people like Ryan and the people he cites are doing a great job of kind of really exploring the roots and tensions of this setup. But it would be a big change.
0: So um, in the wake of the Silicon Valley bank failure, you had the FDIC, of course, stepped up and said, you know, we're going to insure over $250,000 for the depositors. Mm -hmm. And then you had the Fed jump in and say, we'll do a $300 billion backstop. And then, um, you know, Biden gave a speech. And in the speech, he repeatedly said, like, this isn't a bailout. And um, I was talking to my friend Corin the other day, who's not particularly political in any way, shape or form. And he doesn't think about economics either. And, you know, he was asking me, like, wait, I heard it wasn't a bailout. Because he heard Biden said that, so, mm-hmm. um, and, and I, you know, explained to him why I think that's an absurd perspective. Just because you're uh, providing a bailout with a slightly different mechanism to get there doesn't mean it's not a bailout. So, is it mm-hmm. your assessment that that you know that comment from Biden is is as much of a lie as I think it is?
2: I think there's two ways of looking at this. If you look at a bailout as kind of extraordinary ad hoc support for individual actors in the financial system. What happened with the guarantee of all deposits at Silicon Valley and Signature Bank was certainly a bailout. They were stretching their man, they were going outside the regular procedures um, to provide support for a group of people who would not normally get that support unless they acted. So in that sense, calling it a bailout, or I've been calling it a quote-unquote depositor bailout, is like totally understandable and correct. But I do think we should try to understand exactly what Joe Biden is saying and why he's saying it. Um, what happened in 2008 is that there was these lending programs for banks. There was also the FDIC, um, guaranteed non-deposit bearing transaction accounts and, uh, debt issued by banks. This would be like money that was used for payroll because the idea is that if there was bank runs and people couldn't make payroll, it would make the economy like way worse. Um, and there was kind of lots of specific help for individual Banks like Citigroup and Bank of America, and this was an AIG, obviously. This is some of the most controversial stuff that the federal government did in the 2008 period. Um, so what they did in Dodd-Frank is that they essentially made it very hard to do that type of bailout again. So um, the FDIC cannot, on its own, guarantee all bank deposits um, like they could have in 2008 without Congress acting. Um, the Federal Reserve cannot set up facilities like lending facilities for individual institutions. They have to do it for a bunch of them at the same time, and uh, yeah. So that so from the way Congress understood what a bailout was, what the FDIC did um, two weeks you know over the weekend two weekends ago was not a bailout, and that's what Joe Biden is saying. I think what you're saying is obviously makes a ton of sense. You know, this is support coming from the public, even if it's not quote-unquote taxpayer money. It's a thing of value that's being given to banks and their depositors. And that thing of value, this guarantee, is coming from kind of government action. In the case of the FDIC, the extent that they have to use the FDIC fund, the deposit insurance fund, to make these depositors whole, that fund will then have to be replenished by kind of special tax or assessment on banks, which is, again, something Biden is talking about when he says no taxpayer dollars will go for this depositor bailout. He's saying that money will come from banks instead. Of course, one can then make the argument, where do banks get the money? Exactly. It's higher fees, it's fewer loans, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. But I think what the mm-hmm. government was being very careful to do was kind of run on these rails set up by Dodd-Frank, which set up kind of very specific limitations on what it could and couldn't do. And then I think what they're doing is being as aggressive as possible within this new framework that they set up. And that framework was set up partially because they did not, they thought some of the things that the Fed and the Treasury and FDIC did in 2008 were so politically toxic. They kind of wanted to bind their hands from doing that again. But what's, what shows is that when a crisis happens, the government will exploit the maximum amount of its authority in the ways that previous governments and the law says, they can't. It's very much a lawyerly problem. I mean, shocking. Uh, yeah, I mean, lawyers yeah, that, are very important right. in government policy, but yeah, it's a very like, lawyerly like, situation happening.
0: I feel like you just made my argument better than I could. You know what I mean? <laughs> because it's like they're passing the buck, but it's still the same stuff going on. It's dishonest. And then you get the same result while trying to avoid the political backlash that came about with Congress being directly involved as they were.
1: They didn't want the label bailout. Right, I mean, exactly. <laughs> And right. as you said, Dodd-Frank also limited some of the things that they could do. But I mean, I guess you, you mentioned this as a crisis. Was it a crisis? Because, you know, I have a lot of questions, and this is part of what was so extraordinary about these actions is Silicon Valley Bank is a mid-tier bank. It's not a, you know, one of the giant ones. Um, Mm -hmm. Signature Bank was much smaller. Both of them are quite unusual um, in terms of the, you know, for Silicon Valley Bank in particular, the percent of deposits that were uninsured, was like 98% or something. This is wildly unusual. Yep. Totally Mm -hmm. concentrated in this one very vulnerable industry and then doing a terrible job with their interest rate risk management where they're, you know, putting all their assets into uh, long-term treasuries. So, you know, Le- basically leaving their ass hanging out. That's an unusual set of circumstances. And apparently, at least according to the reporting, Biden was initially very reluctant to do any of these things. Um, but after, and there was a lot of reporting on this too, after they talked to Jamie Dimon and after there was a whole VC meltdown on Twitter and after Rokano, who represents Silicon Valley, like button told, uh, I think it was Roschetti, at the gridiron dinner, <laughs> That's when they're, I mean, you couldn't make it up, right? Yeah. That's when they're like, all right, I guess we're not only going to act, but in a way that, again, is quite revolutionary because Mm -hmm. we're still figuring out what it means in terms of which deposits are backstop, because it's now just a complete fiction that it's only $250,000, but nobody knows what it actually is or who it applies to. And by the way, small banks are really furious right now because they feel like they're gonna pay the fees on this thing, but Yellen has basically said, now if things go south for you, we don't really care. Mm -hmm. Um, And then in terms of the lending facility that they used, the particular section of the Federal Reserve Act that they invoked is meant to be for effectively emergency situations. So if you have like a wiggle at a mid-sized bank and that justifies this whole of government overwhelming force response That effectively means that, you know, almost any bank is now deemed sort of too big to fail and that the federal government will jump in and do, like, whatever it takes at a moment's notice to make sure that they never, ever have any problems. Isn't part of a healthy, like, society and banking system that one mid-sized bank can fail and you have a process for dealing with that and it doesn't cause all of this instant emergency action?
2: Uh, the short answer to that question is yes. And the longer answer to that question is that the Dodd-Frank framework uh, is entirely based on this idea that it has set up a better system of bank resolution such that even the largest bank could fail. but um, And the regional banks could fail too. I mean, what happened in 2018, this is something that you know, has been a ton of reporting on and was, people were aware of it at the time, is that these mid-sized banks uh, you know, lobbied for a relief, quote-unquote regulatory relief, from parts of Dodd-Frank around liquidity and capital and stress tests. And the explicit argument was that they did not need this kind of J.P. Morgan level of scrutiny because, one, they were less risky in their operations, and this is something that the former CEO of Silicon Valley Bank told the Senate. He said that they're a low-risk operation. And two, that their failure did not was not as risky to the economy as a whole we've learned that at least according to the federal government that's entirely wrong that two of these banks can fail over the weekend and it's a massive from their perspective a massive crisis so the premise of that Dodd-Frank rollback and the subsequent regulatory specific regulatory relief offered in 2019 i think has been entirely undercut by the actions of the federal government um the other thing i would say though about um you know what is a crisis what isn't a crisis is that always and it's always kind of like the worst run most exceptional institutions that are kind of caught out the worst when weird things start happening. I mean, anyone who's seen a nature documentary knows that it's always like kind of the injured or young or old gazelle or whatever that gets taken down by the lion. (laughs) It's not the most vigorous, you know, young male gazelle or whatever, young female gazelle, you know, it's always like a baby or injured gazelle. Sorry, this is going on for a little long time. But my point is, it's like, (laughs) that does not show that lions aren't threats to gazelles just because only the weakest gazelles get taken down. So I think that's one way of looking at it. It's always going to be an institution that was poorly run that's going to be hit the first and the most by um, strange economic conditions. And the second thing I would say is that one of the weird things about federal government responses to banking crises is that they're always trying to balance, at least theoretically, you know, trying to keep the system as a whole safe against what's called moral hazard, where you kind of are always bailing people out and it makes them act more riskily in the future. Right. But if a banking response works like really, really well, which has this on its own terms, of course, to kind of calm the economy and make things more stable, it will then seem in retrospect that you had done too much. Mm. And so there's a little bit of that going on for sure that like you from the, Fed's perspective and FDIC and Treasury's perspective, if an action results in people a few weeks later saying they did too much, it kind of worked. Um, whether that's the case will remains to be seen, but I think it's kind of a, a perspective to yeah. keep
1: in mind. Yeah, I, I think it's, I mean, I, we'll, we'll never know, right? The <laughs> counterfactual yes. of what would have happened if they mm-hmm. didn't, you know, do what David Sachs told them to do instantly, right? We'll never yes. know. But I do think one thing we can see is it kind of calls into question the whole system of banking that we have. And I will not be the first to make this point. I was going to say, yeah. That it's like, okay, well, if we're going to if we are as a society going to take on the risk of basically every bank, certainly from the mid level up.
0: Why have private banks?
1: Why do we have private banks? Yeah. Like, you get all the profit and then we're just here to be like, don't worry, guys. We'll clean it up. Do whatever dumb shit you want to do and we'll make sure that you're okay in the end because we can't possibly allow any of you to fail. Like, why are we even approaching any of this in the way that we are? Mm -hmm.
2: Yeah, that's a really good point. And like, I think the calls for kind of public banking have been more, there's probably been more of those in very mainstream publications. Like the Washington Post had an op-ed about how there kind of should be unlimited deposit insurance in exchange for some kind of like public-ish banking model. And like that op-ed would not have been published three weeks ago, but it was yeah. published last week. And that's like, people really are thinking about this. And I think on the other hand, uh, the banking industry, which obviously benefits a lot from deposit insurance, with the exception of these kind of mid-sized banks, which are really struggling right now because of deposits fleeing, traditionally the banking industry, and this is true in the 1930s, has been at best skeptical and at worst outright hostile to deposit insurance. I think precisely because they saw there was this deal where deposit insurance came with stricter regulation, which is what the advocates for deposit insurance, going from William Jennings Bryan to people in the Roosevelt administration, even though Roosevelt himself at first was opposed to it, they always said, you know, more insurance, more supervision. And I think that's why uh, banks have been skeptical of it. And I think that's why you also cannot then... That's why I think also this mid-sized bank trade group making an argument for universal, you know, essentially unlimited deposit insurance. Are they supporting rolling back the 2018-2019 Dodd-Frank changes? Absolutely not. Mm. And so that's like a pretty tough... That's a kind of pretty... There's a lot of tension in their position. I think there's less tension in the position of the community banks are like, we don't want to be put on the hook for this stuff that we didn't do. That makes sense. And there's not a lot of tension in the position where uh these law professors who have been saying we need universal deposit insurance in exchange for a kind of much more limited private banking uh industry.
1: Yeah.
2: Uh, yeah, so I think those calls, that kind of way of re-understanding how banking works, it totally makes sense why people are thinking that way right now. They should be.
0: Yeah. I mean, the way I used to think about this was, I guess, more along the lines of um, break up the banks, bring back Glass-Steagall. But Mm -hmm. watching this unfold, I mean, you had a situation where this bank, Chris and I were talking about this, this bank was like tailor-made to not get a bailout. It's like the bank of yep. venture capitalists in the tech world, and like you said, like ninety seven or ninety eight percent had above. Yeah, if anyone was going to be okay, was going to be, was not be not this bail out. It was going to be this bank, <laughs> and then they rushed in and did it immediately. So, I guess my question for you is, um, can you make the case? W- which is better? Which is better, nationalizing the banks or or breaking them up, keeping them private but returning to Glass Steagall in like a robust regulatory state?
2: Yeah. So I think one thing to look at is. This- period called like the quote-unquote quiet period. It's like kind of the first few decades after the formation of the FDIC, where banks were super limited in, for one, there was Glass-Steagall, which is, they get rid of by the 1990s. But general banks were limited in kind of the number of branches they could have, whether they could have locations in different states, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And there were like over, there tons of banks. I mean, the United States has an insane number of banks right now. It's like around 5,000, maybe like 15,000 or something back then. But the idea is that any given bank would not be a threat to financial stability. And there were some drawbacks to that model. I mean, there were massive bank failures, you know, thousands of banks failing during the savings loan crisis, because they were all kind of exposed to the same kind of interest rate type issues. There was a big bank bailout in, I think, 1984, the Continental Bank. So, like, it's not like after we got rid of Glass-Steagall and allowed like J.P. Morgan to form, we start we started having, bank, you know, systemic bank failures and consequently bailouts, but um, it is a different model. And it's one that I think people understandably really kind of are thinking more that they're more attracted to. And what's important about kind of the quiet period model, the kind of New Deal banking order, that we've actually done it before, and it was consistent with a fair amount of economic growth and a yeah. kind of an economic model that a lot of people are kind of looking back on more fondly, this kind of post-war economic model. Whereas a kind of more fully nationalized, explicitly nationalized banking system, it's just a huge unknown. Um, there's not really a model for it in kind of a mixed economy like the United States. Uh, in Canada, it's a little different. Like there's only six banks there, and they're they're private, but like they're very highly regulated. So there are different models out there, including the kind of post New Deal model. But the kind of nationalized model is like and something law professors talk about a lot, but it's oh. not really clear exactly how that would work in practice.
0: I'm surprised to hear that. I feel like um, there would have been some country out there that has something somewhat analogous to it. I mean, I know
1: Norway or something. Yeah, some yeah. Scandinavian
0: <laughs> countries have a sovereign wealth fund. You have many countries that have yeah. like. All of their oil is nationalized, so it's like conceptually, it's actually not that difficult to imagine just a nationalized banking system. But I mean, I'll take your word for it. Um, I'd be interested to hear what Matt Brunick yeah. has to say. No, I that.
2: mean, I'm sure, yeah. I'm, there, I'm sure there are there are some, but kind of on the scale of the United States. And recently, yeah, I would think. I mean, obviously, in kind of like non capitalist countries, they have nationalized financial centralized financial systems. But like even Sweden had a huge banking crisis um, in the early 1990s, so. Banking, as we understand it, at least now, and, like, there are professors who have proposals to kind of change this, is kind of inherently unstable. And the question is, who is kind of—is is there a way to set up a banking system where the government or the public is not kind of the ultimate backstop for it? And all I can say is we haven't figured out one yet. Yeah, Yeah, I mean, clearly. just
0: cut out the middle. I mean, that's the thing that drives me crazy, just like the way I think yeah. about health insurance, too. It's like— mm-hmm. It's like, why? There are these unnecessary mafia-like middlemen just price gouging everybody and getting in between them and their doctors. It's just a terrible system that we have here in the U.S. You look at single-payer systems. I think they function much better. And now when we look at banking, I feel the exact same way. When you talk about these Mm -hmm. people, like you said, you're privatizing all the profits. You're socializing all the losses. And then you whine and you moan and you cry if you don't get every single thing you want immediately from the Fed or from Congress.
1: Well, you— It's actually kind of worse than that because, listen, again, it may have devolved into total chaos, crisis, et cetera. But it was also kind of like a threat, especially since Mm -hmm. the group of people who, you know, were depositors at Silicon Valley Bank sort of like self-engineered their own bank run. And so when Mm -hmm. they were all running around on Twitter like, oh, my God, it's going to be the end of the banking system and the mid-tier banks are all going to fail. Now, there was some logic to what they were saying because they're like— Why would any depositor then stay at these banks? They'll all go to the big banks. But there was also sort of like an implicit threat in there too. of Like, listen, we just tank this one. We can tank this whole shit if you don't come through with the action that we want you to take.
2: Yeah, I mean, I I hesitate to kind of get into moral judgments of people. I will just say this. I don't. The arguments (laughs) I found most compelling for why the FDIC should kind of take this extraordinary action to guarantee instantly guarantee all deposits was hearing from businesses that were using Silicon Valley Bank essentially to manage their payroll, which may have been wise or unwise as a risk management strategy, but like the connection between $250,000, you know, between having to wait a week or something to get all your deposit back versus paying people like that made sense.
1: I agree. This idea
2: that also. I agree.
1: Although it's also was painted as like, they're going to lose everything. And um, that yes. was not accurate. I mean, there right. is That's a right. process that was laid 000. down of That's how right. this is supposed to yes. work. I mean, first of all, $250,000 is there. You're good to go. Yep. No problem. And everyone but knows I'll, that
2: too. This idea that no one really thought that their deposits were at risk is like one of the most risable things listen, I've ever heard. Hulu like a child having, who's seen a Wells Fargo ad knows what the deposit insurance limit is. Right? Yes. I would yeah. hope that our America's CFOs also know that.
1: Hulu yes. having... Five hundred million dollars. Yeah, in that's on this, you, Hulu. Come on, but that's even broker, yeah. but even beyond that, there's a process for doing this, which is yes. you yes. sell the assets and then you make the depositors as whole right. as possible. This the numbers that I saw back at the envelope was that ultimately they were going to end up with like ninety to ninety five percent of their stuff anyway, <sighs> and it was the price of you know that may have taken some time to unfold. They were Mm -hmm. likely to have access to probably half their deposits pretty quickly in a matter of days. And guess what? They're backed by really wealthy venture capitalists who, if they think Mm -hmm. they're such promising business prospects, could have floated them a bridge loan. So it goes back to Kyle's point about the story that was painted was like, oh, this would be the most disastrous bank to fail. When in reality, these are some of the, you know, best connected, most well-positioned to survive a business bump of anyone in the entire country. But there's another piece I want to get to with you, Matthew, because the Fed is not just about hiking rates and, uh, you know, doing the discount window and that stuff. They also are regulators who Mm. were supposed to be taking a look at Silicon Valley Bank and, in fact, reporting after the fact has um, revealed that they had issued, I can't remember what these memos are called, but like memo of concern or whatever, to Mm -hmm. Silicon Valley Bank. They knew there were issues, but they didn't actually do anything. And then you add on top of that, the fact that the CEO of Silicon Valley Bank sat on the Fed board in San Francisco. I mean, talk about the, the regulatory failure there. Why was the Fed so asleep at the switch that they let it even get to this point?
2: Yeah, this is a I think I've probably been somewhat frustrating to your listeners in that I'm always trying to kind of argue on behalf of one side or kind of make one point and then argue against it. Here I think we could be much less ambiguous. I can be much less ambiguous. This is a clear example of supervisory failure by the Federal Reserve at kind of every level. The first, you know, being this idea from 2018 that these mid-sized banks could run more risk and were less threat to the financial system from by their own lights. So that has been proven to be entirely false. Um yeah, I mean, it's been a failure that it does seem like people on the ground were concerned about this. There was also pretty wide knowledge that interest rate hikes were threatening the asset values of banks. The FDIC was, they published data about this. It's not secret by any means. Mm. Um, and the FDIC chairman was giving speeches about how um, the interest rate risks that banks were running. Uh, and then the Fed kind of operates under this kind of somewhat archaic 1913 system where the, where the regional banks, which do a kind of lot of on the ground supervision are, I mean, they're part of the government. They issue delegated authority from the Fed board, but like, they do have this kind of very close connection with the financial sector in their regions. And they do have these boards, which bankers are on. And it's, uh, at worst, it's, I mean, at best, it's a a appearance of a conflict of interest. Uh, At worst, there's something worse going on. Yeah, And the Fed totally messed up. I mean, they should have seen this. Um, They should have been they should have been on the lookout for it. They should have been telling the supervisors, like, this is the type of thing to see, and that it's the supervisors coming back, the examiners are coming back and saying, this is what we're seeing. There should have been a process by which they could exercise some authority over these banks. And it seems like they either didn't know that they should or didn't want to. And I, I really hope that there is a pretty thorough... I mean, the, the reporting in kind of Bloomberg and the Journal and New York Times about this has been fantastic, yeah. but... I hope and I think everyone hopes that there is a kind of really thorough going and hopefully as independent as possible investigation in of the of supervisory failures here. It's
0: regulatory capture.
1: Well, you know? and Bernie, actually, I saw just as introducing legislation to try to um, undo that conflict of interest. But I think mm. it's Matt Stoller who I'm stealing uh, this information from. But um, according to this person that I was reading that I think was Matt Stoller. There was a real philosophical <laughs> thats out there. Yeah. There were there was a lot of um there was a philosophical shift during the neoliberal era in terms of how regulation mm-hmm. should actually be accomplished. And yep. the idea during the Greenspan years of the Fed was basically like, look, our job is really to provide transparency. And then it mm-hmm. is the uh, shareholders and the market that will really do the Regulation and we'll oversee this, and you know, they'll so in other words, ca- don't
0: regulate <laughs>
1: pretty much. <laughs> sure, but, yeah. but the idea was okay, we're not going to be so active and saying, Oh, you've got a problem, and you've got to do this X, Y, and Z. It was actually no, we're just going to make sure we're in a position to provide transparency for the market, and the market will do mm-hmm. the uh, you know, most of the regulation. And in previous eras. You know, there actually weren't some of the hard and fast rules like capital requirements that we have in place now, mm-hmm. but there was much more of a, um, you know, handle on a case-by-case basis and more uh, intensive approach to uh, to, supervi- to supervision than we have now in the neoliberal era. Do you agree with that about the sort of philosophical approach? And is that something you can mm-hmm. fix with policy or is that just something that is an ideological shift that needs to happen?
2: Uh, the policy and the ideology definitely kind of work together. I mean, the idea behind the development of kind of capital requirements and risk-weighted assets, where the amount of capital you need to have for a loan versus a treasury bond is different. The idea there was that it kind of, by setting out these kind of more clear rules, it then gave examiners what and supervisors what they did is kind of make sure that they were following these kind of clear rules, and then that they were transparent about how much capital they had, et cetera, et cetera. And if you look at Silicon Valley Bank, or Credit Suisse, um, in Switzerland, they were passing all their regulatory issues with kind of the capital ratios and mm-hmm. the stuff that they're supposed to have on their balance sheet. Mm-hmm. And so from a supervisory or regulatory perspective, you can kind of say a uh, job well done. You know, they, uh, they hit these numbers that they were supposed to and uh, investors are able to see what stuff they had on their balance sheet and their capital ratios, etc, etc, etc. And but obviously, that's not a job well done. It's been a disaster that they've been able to kind of meet the regulatory requirements and still yet fail so quickly and take on all this risk. Um, and I think to kind of get back to what Kyle was saying about um, about Glass-Steagall is that one reason this Greenspan approach developed where kind of what the supervisors were supposed to do was insist on transparency and process so that then bondholders, executives, and stockholders could then Exercise really intensive supervision over the banks is that as these banks got bigger and more complex, the idea is that an individual supervisor's um, ability to see into what a what they were doing and b what they should be doing was limited, and so what they should do is kind of open things up, make things transparent, and the market would act. Mm. Um, I mean, that says like
1: mm-hmm. this almost sounds
2: like a joke about what neoliberalism
1: correct is correct. like,
2: but it's it's literally what happened.
1: Yeah, and
2: uh, it's. It's uh, it's definitely, um, it's shown its, it's worked uh, great. as an approach.
0: It's worked out great it, it reminds me of like when Trump or George W. Bush, they put like some executive from ExxonMobil at the head of the EPA. And they're yeah. like, well, this person has expertise in this field. It's like, yeah, they have expertise in those regulations because they're used to avoiding them.
1: Right, <laughs> you right. You know? Yeah.
0: And so it's the same thing with
1: Well, at this. the core of it is like, I don't believe the government's up, the, up to the task. Rather than trying to make the government up to the task, we're going to roll the government back and just say, let's let the magic of the free market work it out. That's going to work out for everybody. And we think I think we've all seen how that has gone. Um, Matthew, thank you so much for your time and your expertise today. I have really learned a lot from you. I appreciate it.
2: Oh, thanks so much for having me on. I uh, had a great time.
1: Yeah, our pleasure. And anything you want to... Um, Plug to people, Uh, you know, we introduced you with Grid News, but uh, anywhere people should follow you.
2: Yeah, you know, uh, Grid.News, you can see all my stories. I've been writing a ton about this stuff, Um, kind of really kind of detailed into the weed stuff about the banking system that I'm sure you guys would enjoy. And then uh, also my Twitter account, at Matt Zeitlin on Twitter. So uh, follow me there too. Fantastic. Very informative,
0: dude. I really enjoyed this. Thanks for your time. Thank you. All right, guys, that was uh, Matthew Zeitlin. Um, that was a, a really interesting conversation. It's nice to talk to somebody who's a, a bit more of an expert than me or you, who can sort of dive into all the nuances of it. But the general takeaway that I have is like, yeah, we were kind of right about the whole thing. <laughs> 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 like, yeah, it's it's whole bullshit. It is a bailout. Um, you know, the point I keep making, Crystal's, uh, like nobody ever says ever, ever, ever like, oh my God, 500,000 medical bankruptcies a year immediately bail them out. And that's like, that's where I would be like, I mean, they're right, we should bail them out. Or 600,000 homeless people, oh my God, we got to bail them out. Yeah. they ne- Nobody ever, ever, ever says that. And it's like, we just accept that, but a, the bank of venture capitalists and tech weirdos fails and all of a sudden everybody's melting down. Yeah. Like a David Sachs guy on Twitter who is like em- embarrassing himself, like, oh my God, financial contagion, please give me all the money. You know what I mean?
1: Yeah, I think that is at the core of what was so galling about this situation and part of why I've been, like, honestly sort of obsessed with trying to understand it and what it means and, you know, what it should mean and what better regulation might look like and what should be done in Congress because at the core of our system— is the fact that you have institutions which respond in a very aggressive and nimble way when the interests of the wealthy are at stake. And then the institutions that are meant to be, you know, be there for regular people are like, don't exist, or creaky, or moribund, or dysfunctional, or whatever. And so you end up with, I keep coming back to this tweet I saw that was like, democracy at this point just basically means like rule by judges and central bankers.
0: (laughs) Right. It's so true. They're the ones that have the actual like power to act immediately. And by the way, the other point is make big changes. Yes. Like the the Supreme Court just makes a giant change and does it like that. Yeah. And says, oh, it's our interpretation of the law.
1: Yeah, which is like, I mean, the, the best situation would be, okay, you have an actual functioning Congress that is actually responsive to the American people. Like that's the way this is supposed to work. But because that seems like fanciful, you instead have um, people, myself included, going in the direction of like, well, wh- how about we take the undemocratic institutions and at least cut the working people a little bit in on the deal? Maybe that's like the best workaround we can do in the meantime, which is where you get ideas like Fed accounts, for example, as one small instance. But Matthew is right that, you know, even if we did that, and I think we should, it doesn't come anywhere close to like the discount window where banks can go and just like, fill their balance sheet and part of this bailout that is a little bit complex, but was maybe the most significant portion, is they can use as collateral the original value of assets that have lost a lot of value. So whatever the original value of it was, they're able to use that as collateral. It's, I mean, if we tried to do that, that would be accounting fraud, right? right. absolutely. <laughs> and it's magical, you know, math to make these banks whole. And it's a huge amount of public support, even if it's not technically taxpayer support. Those are the sorts of facilities that are available to banks and to the wealthiest among us. And meanwhile, like the rest of us are out, you know, well, write a letter to your congressman about how you need to be able to get a day of paid sick leave. Good luck. You know, good luck.
0: On this question of breaking up the banks re-regulating them. Yeah. Like we did, you know, during the relatively peaceful, stable banking era. Yeah. Or nationalizing them. Which way do you fall? Because my old opinion was more along the lines of, let's just do what we know kind of worked for a while. But my new opinion is more just nationalizing because what I'm afraid of is, uh, even if we get back to a place where you have like a new deal type reformation, um, Who's to say that we won't in 30 years, 40 years, 50 years, enter another neoliberal era where we go down the exact same path and then we're faced with these same problems. Whereas if you nationalize it, I think about it, like think of like social security, for example. Yeah. Like it was brilliantly constructed where like it's sort of on its own. You know, it's not part of the budget every year where you have to re-up it or whatever. It's like kind of in a lockbox over here in the corner and yeah. it just sort of functions. And then if you may try to make a big change, well, oh my God, it rains holy hell on you because Americans love it because they know it works and it's stable and it's been there. That's how I want it to be a similar thing for banking, where it's just like we're not talking about vultures and and parasitic capitalists who are sucking up all the profit and then socializing all the losses. I just want to totally change the way that we approach this thing.
1: This situation has also radicalized me on this point for a slightly different reason, which is that the whole idea of glass Eagle and breaking up the big banks is that if you have a range of smaller or mid-tier banks, then any one of them goes under. The system is basically fine. We have a process in place. No problem. No bailouts. Well, that's been proven false. Right. Yeah, Because this wasn't one of the big banks that need nope. to be broken up that failed. And you still had a bailout and you still had this whole of government like basically revolutionizing of the banking sector overnight. So that tells me, OK, the government is basically acting de facto like every bank is too big to fail and that the taxpayers will at bottom be on the hook for the risk taken by effectively any bank in the whole country and so if that's the case then yeah just breaking up the banks isn't going to be enough because even the mid-sized banks governments are going you know the government is going to treat this as a complete crisis and come in and backstop it so that's why it really radicalized me is it's like, all right, well, if we're backstopping this whole thing anyway, that wasn't clear to me before. Now it's clear to me that at at the end of the day, the taxpayer is expected to backstop the whole system. So this just makes this makes no sense. No sense whatsoever.
0: Yeah. I mean, so the list of things I want to nationalize is getting longer and longer. I must admit. <laughs> no, oil is on that list yeah, now. Yeah, um, Pharma is Healthcare. on that list. That's mm-hmm. one where I'm kind of almost... I don't hear many other people saying that, but I'm big on uh, nationalized pharma. Obviously, health insurance, we should have single payer. But now banking too. It's just, look, there are certain things where the profit motive and privatization simply doesn't work. Yeah. And now it's been proven beyond any reasonable doubt in the banking sphere. You know, Maybe you could have argued previously, there's not enough evidence to indicate that that's an area that should be privatized. This is not like selling shoes or selling couches or Video games, you want to have the profit motive and privatization on that front by all means. I don't want the government involved in making the next version of PlayStation or Xbox, you know what yeah. I'm saying, but like banking looking at what's unfolding now, I mean, like you said, it's already the case anyway that we're backstopping everything. So if that's the case, you got to get rid of the assholes, the executives who are smoking cigars and' have, buying their third yacht right and then whining if they don't get every single penny on the dollar,
1: yeah. And one of the talking points about the this bailout was, well, the executives were fired. The shareholders were wiped out. The executives were giving themselves bonuses, like right up to the moment of collapse. Because they, they knew they were cashing out their stock, they were selling off their stock to the tune of millions of dollars ahead of this as they well. They knew, they knew. So, and they that maybe some of that will get clawed back. I think Elizabeth Warren and others are looking into whether that might be the case, but it's unlikely. And so, of course, it's unlikely. Even the idea that, oh, they they you know got wiped out. That's really, really not true. But yeah, I think if you think about the core, you know, some of the core functions of society, some of the things that you should take the profit motive out of, your health, money, future of the planet in terms of the oil companies. Housing
0: now, too. I mean, there's one place, what is it, Switzerland or Austria? There's some place that the majority of the houses are public. And- it would blow an American's mind if you look at it because I don't know if it's Switzerland or Austria. I feel like th- those are the two that are popping in my mind, but it's one or the other. Anyway, uh, if you looked at it, because it's like, when we think of public housing, we think of like rundown, decrepit, right. rat infested or whatever. They have beautiful public housing over there. Beautiful public housing. It's just a matter of incentive and policy choice. Hey, do you want to make the public housing beautiful? And if right. most people are living in public housing, it seems like they want to do that. seems like they invested the right amount of money and boom, it's way better off. And they don't have to worry about the same sort of Things that we got going on here in terms of the cost of housing becoming unaffordable and all and these issues private around equity
1: it. buying it, exactly. treating it as an investment rather than no, this isn't shouldn't be like a speculative gamble. This is where people live. Correct. That's what the purpose of housing should Correct. be. Correct. That's right.
0: All right, guys. So there you have it. I think that was a wonderful interview. We hope you enjoyed it too. Um, everybody, do us a big favor and sign up on Substack. If you pay five bucks a month, you get the video of every interview and you get it a day early. Remember, Crystal and I don't take any corporate money, any advertiser money for the show. It's all funded through small dollar donations. So if you guys like what we do, please donate five bucks a month and then you'll get the video a day early. And everybody else, don't worry, you can sign up for free uh, and listen to the full audio version of the podcast um, over on any of the podcast platforms you prefer. It drops a day later. And that's all we got for you. We love you guys. We'll talk to you soon.